The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. Well, good morning. Uh, Thank you for joining us at our live slash pre-recorded stream this morning. We've had a live Bible study, and once again, we've had songs and sermon pre-recorded. So thank you for joining us. It's so good to have you. As many of you are watching this, there will be some outside at our church and drive-in church. There will be some in the green space, and there will be uh, some in the uh, inside as we migrate back slowly and surely back inside. So thank you for your patience. Many of you who've messaged us or reached out, thank you so much. We know these are certain trying times, and we know that these decisions are always uh, always tough for you and your family. And, and we said this last week, we just want to say it again, that each time we come together, it's together. It's not this class of Christian here outside or this class outside. We are together in this church, so thank you so much. And if you're watching this this morning or later on, and you're a visitor to our church and you are curious about us, please find our website, towerviewkc.com uh, slash uh, the, uh, gospel, slash gospel. That'll give you a lot of info about the heartbeat of our church. I want to read our scripture first this morning from James chapter 4. We're going through our street level faith, which we're in our series. We're in the uh, last few sermons of our series. This Today's question that we're answering is, am I really that bad Lord? Am I really that bad Lord? Today's text is James 4, 1 through 10. Be reading out of the ESV. Hear God's word this morning. James writes, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you, or even your pleasures could be one way to translate that. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and you can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You don't have because you do not ask. Verse 3, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly, to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, you don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or verse 5, do you suppose it is no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Verse 6, but he gives more grace. If you're an underliner, this is, this is one of those to underline. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God, and resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep, and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. And finally, verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. You know, this is a passage that we're obviously going to go through, but I would encourage you, as we've been asking you to do, is pray this passage for our nation, for our church, for those around the world, because this is really a passage that gets to the heart of things. So let's pray. We'll get into our text, and may God be glorified. Will you join me in prayer? Father, thank you so much for for the time we have to study your word. Father, there is no book like it. There's no source like it. Father, it is divine. It is inspired. It is inerrant. It is infallible. It is sufficient for all matters of faith and practice, and most importantly so, but often forgotten, is authoritative 
Father, when your word speaks, you have spoken. It is said, it is done, it is finished. So Lord, as our hearts, as our minds try to argue against this text because we say that might not be me or that might be someone else, Father, would you do as verse 6 says, would you remind us through your spirit, Father, what it means to follow you. And Father, thank you that there is more grace because Father, even looking at this text, We know, I know, even this week, this day, that I failed in so many ways in these points. Father, may this be applicable to us, not just as a way to feel better, but as a way to grow closer to Christ, to be encouraged, to be edified. And Father, for those watching who do not know you, that this would draw them to see their sin and that they would repent and believe the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the only way to heaven. There is no other name under heaven by which we are saved except the name of Jesus Christ. Thank you so much. Lord, we pray these things today expectantly. We pray them gratefully as you've been so gracious to us. We ask this today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there is a story about a young man who was named Willie, and Willie was just a young little guy, and Willie's mom was looking for him around the house one day, and she found him. His hand was in the cookie jar in the kitchen. She looked at Willie like a mom only can and said, Willie, what are you doing? And Willie, like a young man, little kid can only say, he said, Mom, I'm fighting temptation. Would you please help me? You know, if we're honest, and I hope we are, this is pretty detailed picture of what these verses in James look like. We want to live for Christ. We want to do his bidding. We want to do all things for his glory, advance his kingdom, grow in him, you know, share the gospel, all the great things of the faith. But if we're really honest, this passage from James grates against us like nails on a chalkboard. And the great danger is because these things seem to be so easy to, to overcome or so easy to understand, we, we want to dismiss them easily as well. But I want to remind us that this passage is being written to a group of people who are amongst the Christian faith, but who are also struggling with these things even some 2,000 years ago. Because there are so many temptations, there are so many failures, so many struggles, so many things that are broken, so many things that are wrong. But God is still great and his grace is greater. Temptation doesn't cause us to sin. What James has reminded us of and what this little simple story is, is that our heart does. So freedom isn't found in a change of our situation, but it's, 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 it's in the change at the level of our hearts that God provides. But lest we forget what Jeremiah 17, 9 says, it says the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can understand it? Christian, don't fail to remind yourself today and throughout the year that you are needy, that you still have sin inside of you. You are in union with Christ, but you are not graduated out of fighting sin. You're still susceptible to temptation, You still need to mature as I do in Christ. And and, and right now there is grace for that. We don't stumble alone in thirsty and dry land of sin and temptation, but we can drink from God's ever flowing, ever enabling grace that he gives us. And it's comforting to remember that there is a specific grace for every sin allowed that God gives us for every temptation that we will ever face. And especially in this passage today, as we look at how God's grace is going to help us overcome our our, our sin. And our Savior in His grace wars for us in our hearts, those very against those very things that war in our hearts against Him, I should say. 
So no matter how long a temptation has been for you or what sin has defeated for you, I pray that you see today as we answer that question, Lord, am I really that bad? Street level faith that God's grace still has power to deliver you and that you see that today. And that, that, that as we worship together, some online, some in person, some inside, outside, that we are called to use this time of worship together to remind our hearts of these great truths. So the question is not whether God will bathe you in his grace. The question is, will you recognize it when it comes? Because grace isn't always easy and enjoyable. You know, so many people think that God, just give me your grace. It's like a power up in Super Mario Brothers or something. But that's completely false. God's grace is going to be uncomfortable. And so do you see that this morning? Do you see that in your life? That as God provides greater grace, he's giving you greater grace to fight these temptations, these sins, these ungodly ways of the world that he talks about here in verses 1 to 10. And so the simple big idea today, the, the, the thesis of the, the entire process is that there is more grace in God than sin in us. There is more grace in God than sin in us. And if you're in Christ today, if you're a Christian, remember that you are promised. And there is grace for every trial. There's escape for every temptation. There's contentment in every circumstance, and there's strength for every step you take. So your steps in faith, knowing today that Christ is sufficient to give you all that he has and all that he ever will have for you by his grace in your life. So in James 4.10, we want to look at three truths about how ungodliness comes about, but how God's grace can expose it and address it in our lives. So we're going to see three things this morning. We're going to see the ungodliness uh, is the cause of our appetites. It's the consequences of our spiritual adultery. And finally, it's the cure for our attitude. And remember that James is saying that our lives have to be changed by this grace, that your life is not meant to be shaped by your wants or your needs or your feelings, but you have been called to a higher calling. And that calling is one that has been fashioned for you before eternity began, sealed for you by the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and applied to you by the Spirit as you live out day by day. The paradigm has changed. Ungodliness can have its way, but God's grace is greater still. So let's look at that first thing we see here. The first point is that the cause of ungodliness is our appetites. The cause of ungodliness is our appetites. You see this in verses 1 to 3. You know, it's interesting that conflict actually reveals how deep and abiding this struggle really is. I mean, I find this a very difficult passage, honestly, because it's teaching, not because the teaching is unclear, but rather because it is clear. And that's what makes this point so hard. I don't want to think this passage addresses me. I want to think it characterizes my struggle, but it actually does. And so he shows us here that ungodliness is the cause of our sinful appetites. Look at verses 1 and 2. These sinful attitudes lead to unchecked passions. He asks that question. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? I mean, isn't it true when you and I are irritated, when we're you know, angry and impatient and experiencing conflict with someone, that our first response, our instinctive response it's to look for a way to explain away the conflict. You know, I was tired. Um, you know, I had a stressful day. I didn't eat breakfast, whatever it is. But look what James does. James does something that's radically different in causing to show us our spiritual appetites are a result of ungodliness. He draws us to humbly face something that's incredibly important. Look again at verse 1. He says, what causes quarrels among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? 
James says, look, guys, here's what's going on inside of you. There's a war being fought in all situations, in all locations, and in all relationships in your life. I mean, think about it. Where, does your, where is your life conflict-free? Is it in your marriage? Is it with your kids? I mean, can you have a marriage completely free of irritation, impatience, anger, and conflict when two sinners marry? I mean, is there a, is there a sibling that you're free of that from? Or a, a body of Christ, a local church that's free of verse 1? And what community has been free of that? I mean, what nation? I mean, look at our nation the last three weeks. It's been crazy. What nation has been free? It's everywhere. Conflict is everywhere. Why? Because he says there's a war of passion, or as I said in the reading, a a war of pleasure might be translated better, going on. And there's a war between what single thing, what single focus will be the thing that pleases me and brings me life-shaping pleasure. That's the question James is answering. I mean, do I get my deepest, fullest pleasures from my wants, my needs, my desires being delivered to me? I mean, I love it when I actually get what I want. But what James is asking is this, is do you see that ungodliness, even while God's grace is there, is causing your passions, is causing your your, your, your passions to get to such a place where you miss the higher, grander, and more glorious pleasure that can only come from doing God's will here on this earth. So, do you want that? I mean, do you want that higher calling? And where, where do you do that? I mean, where do you live out that every day where you want to see that? Because the war rages on. I mean, think about war for a second. What's the purpose of it? The only purpose of war is to win. Whether it's a war on a chessboard or a war of nations with military, winning has one purpose. It's control. It's I get to call the shots. I'm in charge. And there's a war going on, Christian, for the rulership of your heart. And that war will continue to rage until Satan is finally defeated. And and we are ushered into the kingdom of God because there's a war. And because you're a worshiper, because you are always living as I am in pursuit of something, your heart is always going to be ruled by something. As Romans 1.25 says and, and captures so eloquently, we are either living in worship and service to our creator, or we're living in worship and service to the creation that God has made. And so John Calvin, the great theologian, said this famous quote. He said, the heart of a sinful man, and many of you know this quote, and and you know this, but he said, the heart of a sinful man is an idol factory. There's a war going on within your heart. And look what he goes on to say in verse 2 about this. He says that this leads to these passions, these pleasures, these ungodly things. He says, you desire and don't have, so you murder You covet and you can't obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. And I've shared this before, but I want to remind you that desire for a good thing becomes a bad thing when desire becomes a ruling thing. Let me say that again. A a desire, even for a good thing, becomes a bad thing when that desire becomes a ruling thing in your life. When something takes over what God should be having first place in your life, in, in a situation, in a relationship, in a context, your heart is not where it should be. And when my heart begins to be ruled by some craving or something in creation, it alters the way I look at you. So much so, James says, we're willing to murder. So much so, he says, that we're willing to kill and covet. And that ruling desire is something in creation dehumanizes those things and those people I look at, especially the people, because I quit looking at them as someone I should love or serve. Instead, I look at them as someone who can give me something I want or help me get to the next level. And people are agents to deliver your desire in that situation, or they're either walls to your desire. 
And when they are obstacles to you, when things get in the way of something you want, you are spontaneously angry and you want to remove them right there. So he says that this leads to instability. It also leads to instability in our prayer life. Did you notice the end of verse 2? He says that you do not have because you do not ask. Listen, when you have these types of ungodly appetites that, that are fighting against you, they're causing you these appetites in your life, he says it affects your very relationship with God. What happens is you don't really want God to be your father in those moments. You don't really want God. You want him to be a spiritual vending machine, ready to dispense to you what you ask for. This is why, of course, there's such popularity with the, the, the prosperity gospel. And I think it's shocking that, that very often we are praying godless prayers. We pray for things and ask for things that have nothing to do with the will of God, nothing to do with the kingdom of God, and nothing to do with our relationship with God. They have to do with hoping someday, some way, that God will put the rubber stamp and say, okay, I agree with you, this is a good thing, and that, that whatever we've decided, God will go with us as well. And we've tended to turn the Christian faith into a relationship through Christ with a God who is a divine vending machine in the, into the, in the sky, there to meet every need. I mean, if you're unhappy, if you're unattractive, if you're unsuccessful, if you're unmarried, if you're unfulfilled, if, if you're unknown, well, then the culture says, even preachers say, come to Christ and he'll give you everything you ask for. But we forget that God is not primarily in the business church of meeting our needs. And when we make him out to be, when we squeeze him out of his rightful place at the center of our lives, and we put ourselves in his place, God is in the business of not being God in those moments. God is in the business of being our personal little genie like Aladdin. But God is in the business of being God. He is a sovereign God. He will provide for our needs. They may not look like what we want, but what James is saying, and what he reminds us is answering that question, Lord, am I really that bad? He says, yes, you are, because even your ungodly attitudes cause you to have appetites which take you far away from what God intended for you. Christianity can't be reduced to meeting people's needs. And when we attempt to do so, we distort the heart of the Christian message. Let's be clear here. Absolutely, churches should serve. They should be a witness in the world. They should be the salt and the light, the city on the hill, all the great things of Scripture we know. But brothers and sisters, I want to ask you for a moment, what do you really want from God? Is it something to pad your comfortable life, my comfortable life? Or is it really, Lord, I want your kingdom to shape me. I want your desires to shape me. I want you to be glorified. And I would hasten to say that most people, when they pray for things, that is the last thing on their mind. And I've been there, you've been there. But what he tells us is, is that the cause of our ungodliness is our, is our appetites. Yes, there is grace to overcome, but we need to realize that it is a real thing and it really affects us. Second thing I want you to see, not only is, is, is ungodliness the cause of our uh, sinful appetites, but it's the consequences of ungodliness is the cause of our spiritual adultery. The consequences of ungodliness is the cause of our spiritual adultery. Notice again verse 4. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. I want you to get this. This is the core principle of this whole passage, is that human conflict is rooted in spiritual adultery. 
Human conflict is rooted in spiritual adultery. Our problem with one another is not that we don't love one another enough. Our problem is that we don't love God enough. But what is adultery? It's when I promise to give one the love that I have promised to give another. It's when I say, I'm going to marry you, but I go off and, and, and spend that time, spend that, that affection on someone else, not my spouse. We've been brought into a relationship with Christ. We've been bought with a price, haven't we? And the Bible describes it in a marital thing in that God owns our love. He owns the deepest, fullest love of our hearts because he himself gave us that. We love, First John tells us, that because we, he first loved us. And when we struggle with one another because we have other lovers that claim our affection. And what he says is you cannot be on either side of the fence. You have to make a decision. Are you for Christ or are you against Christ? And he says in verse four that anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Let me just stop right there. Non-Christian, thank you so much for joining us. And that may sound really harsh to you. I mean, why would God say that? Doesn't he so love the world? that he gave his one and only son, you bet you he does. But that is exactly the problem, is that he does love the world, but the world does not love him. And if you're not a Christian, you may have a conception of God, but unless you go through the Son, the Savior, the Lord, the only one who can save you, Jesus Christ, there is no relationship with the God of the Bible. Whatever God is to you is not exactly what the God of the Bible is. And I would challenge you to think about, do you have a correct understanding of God? Or is it just something that you have idly made in your life to come out to be? But you cannot be a friend of this world and be a friend of God. You're actually at enmity. You're at war. You're you're at a struggle with him if you do not. Repent and believe the gospel. But think about this for a second. When, When a man is in the midst of a physical relationship with a woman, other than his wife? Is he not at that moment an enemy of the, uh, of the marriage and an enemy of the welfare of his wife? Of course he is. And any time I choose rather to have my will and my way in the way I want it, at the time I want it, in the manner I want it, in that moment, in that time, I stand as an enemy of the purposes of God and the kingdom of God. And that's why he goes on in, in, verse, in verse six and he says, he says, or verse five, do you not suppose, uh, propose, excuse me, do you not suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he is made to dwell in it? Here's what James is saying. Rather than saying, how dare you, he turns our hearts to the glorious, beautiful, faithful, loving God and says, don't you know who you are? Don't you know that you are people who by God's glory, God has, has given and, and chosen you to be the ones of the objects of his eternal love? Don't you know that the spirit lives inside you? Don't you know that I've yearned for you, God says, to walk with me, to live for me? God isn't needy that he, he needs people to satisfy or fill him, but God is such love, filled with such love that he once desires that relationship with us. I mean, if I were to slide on the couch next to my wife, Natalie, and put my arm around her and say, and turn my face towards her and say, Natalie, out of all the women I love, I love you the most. Natalie, out of all the women I love, I love you the most. Now, that doesn't sound too bad at first, but I would imagine in that moment, knowing my wife, because she guards our marriage closely as we both should, that I would imagine my nose would have a different shape after a comment like that. And I'm not sure that would be wrong. 
Because you see, if Natalie loves me, it's right for her to crave that love to be fundamentally exclusive. I don't love my wife in the midst of other women. I love my wife in the midst of only her. And your Lord loves you, Christian. He loves you with a love that is so pure and so faithful. It's hard to wrap your head, let alone the words around it. And because of that love, that way, that the way that he can love you and the way he does and the way he tolerates a fickle, unfaithful, selfish, wandering heart is such grace that only God himself could give. To turn back to him, to come to him, to be reminded of what he has done for you. But then comes that sentence that allow us to hear the hard words of this passage. I asked you to underline it a few minutes ago, but look at it again, verse 6. But he, but who? But God gives more grace. God gives more grace. Not that you're saved again and again and again for salvation, but as you face these, these ungodly appetites, as you face the consequences of the spiritual adultery, still he gives you more grace. He doesn't cut you off. He doesn't cast you out. He no wise cast out anyone who calls upon you, his name. Look, Christian, your Lord walked on this earth. He faced the seductive temptations of this created world. Hebrews says we have a high priest who sympathizes with us because he too was tested like one of us. He endured the range of temptations that all of us endure. He knows how deep the struggle is, yet he was sinless and perfect. And his grace is not just grace for past forgiveness. And praise God for that. Praise God that when he saves you, Christian, he saves you past, present, and future, that his grace covers all that. We don't have to go to a confessional booth. We don't have to go pray to a shaman. We don't have to let, light up a sacrifice every time we get together. That would be odd on recorded uh, sermon time, wouldn't it? But it's not just grace for the past. It's not just grace for the future. It's grace right here, right now, as you face verses 1 to 10, and you go through these struggles of worldliness, of ungodliness. It's grace that your Lord uses the battle on your behalf. And his grace is greater than the deepest, most abiding war of your heart. And praise him for that, that his grace is greater. Where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more, is what Paul wrote. And yet that grace allows us to come out of the hiding and say, you know what, Lord, this James 4 really is about me. It really is describing me. Because you know, Lord, sometimes I love your kingdom. Sometimes I find my greatest joy in being part of what you're doing on earth. And because of that, I am at those moments, I'm patient, I'm giving, I'm kind, I'm all the fruits of the Spirit, Lord. But if we're honest, and I pray we are a church, we would say, Lord, but so often I'm not. So often I'm self-oriented, I'm self-focused. I have a hair trigger of anger and impatience with all those around me. Lord, I, I, I don't care for things at church. I just put on my spiritual mask. Uh, you know, Lord, I just get by. I, I say and do things that have nothing to do with your kingdom. And Lord, in the comfort of your grace, I run to you and not away from you because I know that I've sinned. Christian, he tells us that the cause of ungodliness is our appetites. He tells us that the consequences of our ungodliness is a spiritual adultery. But I'm grateful that that grace exists. And if you're, again, if you're not a Christian, there's nothing that you can do to get to heaven. You can't be good enough. You can't try hard enough. You can't be sincere enough. 
You can't go to church enough. You can't be baptized as a baby enough. You can't go confess your sins enough. You can't pray a thousand Hail Marys. What you do need is to come to Jesus Christ and believe that he alone, by faith alone and Christ alone, by his grace alone, is enough to save you. The Bible says if you confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. He gives more grace. And praise God for that. Christian, if you look at this list leading up to verse seven as we're getting to our last point and you say, golly, man, I've fallen short this week. Then, then you pause this right now and you go to a quiet place and you repent and you take that to the Lord. Because if you think verses one through six are hard, I can tell you having studied this this week, seven through 10, it, looks, it makes verses one through six look like a cakewalk. So let's get into the last point. The cure for ungodliness is our attitude. The cure for ungodliness is our attitude, verses 7 through 10. We've seen the the cause of ungodliness is our appetites. We've seen that the consequence of spiritual adultery, but now the cure for our ungodliness is our attitude. So, So you say, Pastor, what do we do? How do we handle this? What does this look like? Let's just read verses 7 through 10. Grab your Bible. If you put it down, open up your tablet, whatever you got, make sure it's in front. Open it up. Let's read this together. He says, starting in verse seven, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. You double-minded, be be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. These next five little subpoints of, uh, of the, the point three are very straightforward, but I want to just go through them with you briefly. He says, first off in verse seven, that we must develop an attitude of submission. He says, we must develop an attitude of submission. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Did you notice that therefore, as we always study? What is that therefore, therefore? It's therefore because he's telling you, based on the grace of God, how to overcome ungodly attitudes, uh, ungodly spiritual adultery. Therefore, first off, submit yourselves in an attitude of submission. It's an active thing. It's an active thing. We actively rest in God. We submit. It's not just a passive thing. Can God humble you, Christian, at any point? You bet he can. But he's involving your participation here. I would encourage you, as I said a moment ago, to find a quiet place and just may, you know, pray something like this. Lord, I submit me, submit my family, submit my job, I submit my everything to your kingdom once again. Lord, I'm not asking to be saved again. Your grace has secured me eternally by the promises of Christ. But Lord, please help me because I need to submit once again to you. But notice that it's also active not only in resting in God, you're submitting to him, but you're also resisting the devil. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Let me just take a time out right here. We live in a culture today as the enlightenment had. Guys, the devil is a real entity, a real being, a spiritual being. We don't, we don't yell at him like Martin Luther did in that sense. We have the word of God, which is what Ephesians 6 says is the sword of the spirit to fight the spiritual battles. The devil is real. He's not just some Dante's Inferno, you know, guy with pitchforks and, uh, uh, you know, red and has, has horns running around poking you. That's, that's Hollywood. That's Dante's Inferno. But Satan is real. He wants to destroy you. 
Satan hates you so much on a Sunday morning, he's the one that wants you to keep those bed covers on so that you don't get up and go to church. But if Jesus can walk out of the grave, how much more should we spend time with one another? Resist the devil. We need to be vigilant because he walks around, Peter says, like a roaring lion. And Peter said in the verse before, 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your cares on him. Why? Because he walks around, the devil does, like a roaring lion. And we need to be aware of his tricks. We need to be watchful. We need to be good soldiers in this important war. And it starts by submitting ourselves, saying, Lord, every part of me, every part of my family, every part of my job, every part of my faith is before you. Take it and help me resist this devil. Christian, we remind ourselves from James 1 that the devil did not cause you to sin. Temptation started in your sinful heart, in my sinful heart, in all of our sinful hearts. But it doesn't help when Satan drags us along through temptation as well. We must develop an attitude of submission, and we must do it to God's glory. Second thing he says about how to fight this this, uh, ungodly attitude and ungodly spiritual adultery, he says, verse 8, we must develop an attitude of confession, an attitude of confession. He says in verse 8, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, you double-minded. No, cleanse your hands is not a COVID-19 reminder to wash your hands. Seen that joke floating around social media. What he's saying is we've got to bring before the Lord the sins of words, of actions, of behavior that are a result of a service to self. That cleanse your hands and the sins of your heart are the results of the service of the kingdom of self as well. So let me ask you, where are you using your gifts, your abilities, your time, your energy, your resources, all the things God has given you, your words, your mentality? Where are you using those for the kingdom of God? Because the promise is there. If you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Paul said in in Acts 17, he reminded the uh, people on Mars Hill that God is not far from each one of us. And non-Christian, I'm speaking the third time to you. That if you think that God could never forgive you, you think God could never uh, understand what you've gone through, yeah, go to him. You don't just try him out like some uh, trial thing or a 30-day trial. You go to him and you give him your all. But when you draw near to him, he will draw near to you. And he will show you that if you confess with your mouth, that if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. But we need to ask the question, have we developed an attitude of confession? Have we gone before the Lord and said, Lord, I'm so far from you. Lord, I'm a Christian. I'm secure in Christ because of Christ. But Lord, I still I feel distant. Lord, I confess my sin to you. Lord, help me to cleanse my hands. Help me to cleanse my heart. Help me to purify my mind because I don't want to be double-minded. So he says, if you want to live this out by greater grace, you submit yourself. You develop an attitude of submission, an attitude of confession. Thirdly, he says, third sub-point here, he says to develop an attitude of contrition. This is a little deeper than verse 9 on that topic. But he said, be wretched and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned to mourning. What does he mean? He says, I I think it's very important. It's a clear call for us to grieve. Christian, let me just say this. I'm not going to, this is not always the time or the place, but the, 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 the events of the last two weeks that have calmed down at the time of this recording, early June, have kind of calmed down in our nation in some sense, whatever that means but that doesn't mean things have gone away. We should grieve over what's happening to our nation. We should grieve over what's happening in our churches. We should grieve what's happening in our families. There is a clear call for us to weep. 
There's a time for mourning, a time for dancing, Ecclesiastes 3. But I don't think that's the problem of the body of Christ, is that we're too mournful. Perhaps it's the opposite problem. The opposite problem is we let our laughter control ourselves. We let all the things of this world tell us how we are. But that's why we sing songs that bring about uh, reminding ourselves about where we are outside of God. It reminds us of how deep our sin is. We should grieve over our, our, our nation, our church, but mostly he's telling them here, grieve over your faith. That you have wandered, that you have been disloyal, that you have walked in ways that God would not have you walk. Christian, when is the last time you honestly went before God and said, Lord, man, I need to bring some sin to you. He knows it already. What are you hiding? And maybe even an extension to that, you need to confess your sins. And we'll get to that in chapter 5, chapter 5, verse 16, uh, where it says, therefore confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Go to God first, draw near to him. But who is it, Christian, in our church, in your Christian universal church world that you need to go and speak to. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. You know, maybe we are too casual. Maybe we are too satisfied. Maybe we have lost a sense of ugliness and disloyalty. But friends, I would say based on this passage, if we can do that, if we can do all these things without weeping, without mourning, without seeing sin, then we're in deep trouble as we don't see what he's talking about. I'm going to ask you a question once again. Brother, sister, when is the last time you ha- have truly wept over your sin? Not just, Lord, forgive me. Man, I messed up again. When is the last time you poured out your heart to the thrice holy God who saved you? To ask him for direction, for grace, to overcome these things. He says in verse 10, he says, finally, uh, develop an attitude not only of submission, confession, of contrition. He says we should develop an attitude to overcome godliness through this greater grace of humiliation, of humiliation. Verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. If you're looking for a life verse, as we often say, this is one to to take to the bank. God welcomes the needy. God welcomes the weak. God welcomes the poor. And God welcomes us to come in honesty and humility. And that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. He said, he that comes to me, Jesus said, I will never, never turn away. Hebrews 13, 5. He says that he will never, uh, he will never leave us. And in the Greek, it's a triplicate. He will never, 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 never leave us, nor, nor, nor forsake us. He had to tell us three times to get the point of cross. And I'd say to you again, come to him, seek him. Your marriage needs you to come, Christian. Your children need you to come. Your friends need for you to come. Your community needs for you to come. Because the problem of the brokenness you have is that you experience every day is not the sin and brokenness of the world around us. It's the sin that's in you. You, sir, you, ma'am, me, as, as pastor, I am the problem. And I need to go to the one who can solve that problem, and his name is God. And How merciful, how gracious, how abundant is his name. He will hear He will forgive. He will empower. Christian, as we close, I just want to remind you this morning that everything that we have is founded in Christ. As we looked at these ungodly attitudes that lead to appetites that are wrong, verses 1 to 3, we saw the consequences of those attitudes in verses 4 to 6, and finally the cure for ungodliness is found in our attitude of submission, of confession, contrition, and humiliation. I think we need to pray. 
And I've written out a prayer and I'm going to read it. I, I, I wrote it specifically and it's okay to write out prayers. Uh, God still gets the glory for those I pray. But I want to read a prayer for our churches, prayer for our nation, a prayer for our time together. As we close, would you bow your heads with me? I'm going to read this and I pray it is glorifying to God. And I pray it wraps up with a bow everything we've studied today. Let's pray. Father, how long? How long before the day when all racism, all prejudice, all backbiting, all tribalism, all the things we've looked at today will be replaced with love and honor and the richest community imaginable. Father, we crave the day of reconciliation, the day when supremacy will only be attributed to you. Father, there will be a day where there won't be any insiders or outsiders. There will be a day where there'll be no pecking order or ordering one another around. There will be a day, Lord, when there will be more no nuclear war or threats or cars being used as agents of killing and homicide, as we saw in verse 2. Father, the only position that will be jockeyed for on that day will be falling down on our faces to worship and adore you, and then staying low to wash one another's feet. But Father, how long? Father, how long will it be when we love each other the way you love us, where we honor one another above ourselves that will be our greatest delight? not our discipline, when our diversity won't be tolerated, but will be celebrated, where all of our relationships will be whole and beautiful and joyful, and the overflow of the living relationship we have with you, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, will be our greatest joy. Father, we'll look forward to the day when we'll never fail or hurt one another again. We'll never have to apologize, forgive, and reconcile about anything. We're finally, Lord, where your church, Father, which is your beloved bride, will love the way you love us. Where there will be more, no more spats or splits, no more worship wars or waggling tongues, no more denominational or theological arrogance, no more church shopping or church hopping. Lord, we look forward to the day where there's no backbiting, no bickering or bitterness. Father, help us today in light of our passage in James to know that unhinged anger isn't the answer that we'll remember the day when the disciples wanted to call down fire from heaven and destroy some of the Samaritans in Luke 9, that you rebuked them, that you said your kingdom is different, that we know that silence and indifference and passivity aren't the ways of your kingdom either. Father, instead, we call down for the fire of your spirit to come upon our hearts, as James 4, 6 said, that you'll triumph over all evil, you'll triumph over our own hearts is where it begins. And Father, as we look, as James 1 has said at the mirror of your word, that we show each other that attitudes of ungodliness, that appetites of ungodliness, especially in our day, Lord, where racism, tribalism, and nationalism have a greater hold than we realize, that Father, we bring the power of the gospel to bear by your spirit in our relationships, our churches, and our communities. Father, as we've read here and studied, grant us greater grief and repentance over the ways we love poorly. Stun us, humble us, and gladden us again and again and again by only the greater grace that comes. Father, we pray these things today in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, thank you for watching. We love you. We care for you. And we thank you so much. Have a blessed day. May God bless your time as you study. Thank you.